Hello and welcome to The Price of Football, the show that looks at the money behind the beautiful game of me, Kevin Day, and Liverpool University's Kieran Maguire. How are you, Kieran, since you've had, a, you've had another musical week by the look of your social media? I, I have, and I'd just like to say a huge shout out to one of our podcast listeners, Bryn, um, who, who allowed me to go in the, uh, in the cab of a London tube train and, and made my, my choice of career when I was six years old, he made that come true because I, I was, I was told when when when, I, when, I, when they told me I was colourblind. And, and remember those days, they they'd show you those sort of those dots, and and there was no there, there was no counselling in those days. It was yeah, you're colourblind. Um, I go well, so what? I'm six years old. He says yeah, you won't be able to uh, you won't be able to fly a fly a plane or drive a train. And that was it. That was me. I was I was in tears. I was I was devastated. So you know. 55 years later, to, to go back and sit in the cab uh, from the Elephant and Castle North was genuinely a dream come true. So so thank you so much. Well, it must have been, Kieran, because I was going to ask you about, I thought you went to see the Pet Shop Boys this week, but obviously you were so excited about sitting on a tube track. Was this entirely official, this visit to the tube yes, train? Yes, yeah, I've got an official document signed by, by London Transport to say Kieran Maguire is allowed to sit in the cab um, and, and signed off by the uh, by the, the station manager and everything. Oh, well, you know what, what I would do if I was you, Kieran? I'd go on strike now. <laughs> Just to make it fully official. Because I hear, <laughs> did, did, did you go and see the Pet Shop Boys, Kieran, or are we just going to talk tube trains here? No, no, I, I did see uh, the Pet Shop Boys, who were, who were absolutely amazing. Um, I've not seen them for a while. They, they were abs- uh, and, and I think it's fair to say that there was a... A, a meeting of minds because Pet Shop Boys were playing at Wembley Arena and Harry Styles was playing at Wembley Stadium. Oh. And slightly different demographics. I'll say no more than that. Yeah, I, I, I'd imagine the Pet Shop Boys would happily collaborate with Harry Styles. Those very talented young. Um, I wonder if Neil Tennant would be jealous of you, Kieran, thinking, I've, I've had this wonderful musical career, I've got all sorts of bowler hats. I've I've reached a certain age. I'm famous for my music, but I've never driven a, a Bakerloo line train. Well, you see, that's, oh. that's, that's the power of the podcast, Kevin. The Isn't power it of the well, podcast. Talking about the power of the podcast, Kieran. It's it's questions day, but we have some news, uh, and it's us that has the news. Um, uh, although some people listening may already have seen the news because we were slightly caught on hop by a press release we weren't expecting. But the news is, Kieran, that on Thursday, October the twelfth, Bloomsbury. Uh, arguably the greatest publisher in the world, Kieran, which I'm not legally obliged to say, but I think we could agree they're up there with the greatest publishers in the world. <laughs> we'll be releasing the Price of Football podcast book, which uh, is called Unfit and Improper Persons. Um, the, the subtitle was going to be How to Run a Football Club Without Being a Dick. But <laughs> unsurprisingly, Bloomsbury, the poshest publishers in the world, got slightly cold feet about the Dick reference, so that won't be the subtitle. But it's essentially, it's an idiot's guide to running a football club um, without being a dick, basically. And in it, we take a Sunday league team, West Park Rovers, and 
it took about three days for us to yes, it did. A, agree on that name. <laughs> there was all sorts of shenanigans going on about them. Uh, it was going to be called Crystal Albion at one stage, but that sounds like somebody who supported a country in Western Star in Nashville at some stage. <laughs> so Crystal Albion is out. But West Park Rovers, we take West Park Rovers from, from Sunday football to the Champions League. And along the way, we show you the right way and hopefully the wrong way of uh, running a football club, basically. Everything you need to know about how to run a football club. We've got contributions from people like Gary Lineker, Claire Balding, Joe Brand. It's very funny. It's also very informative. Um, and we're very proud of it. Uh, wait till you see the cover. Oh, Kieran, we've got bad news for you, Kieran. I'll, I'll have to describe the cover to you, Kieran, because it's just going to be great to you. But that's Thursday, October the 12th. It's, it's not out. red and blue stripes, is it? It's not red and blue stripes, Kieran. Again, that was another discussion that Bluesbury firmly struck a line through. Uh, the word dick, out. Red and blue stripes, totally out. And, um, we are very proud of it. It's a properly good book. It's got an index and everything. Is, uh, I didn't realise cost us money, but there you go. Producer guy still nodded it through. Um, so, yes, but we'll give you more information about that as it happens. And it is, I think, available already for pre-order on that there, Amazon. Um, and we know how many people listen to this. And if all of you don't order a copy, Uncle Terry's around. <laughs> uh, we've got a massive database somewhere. I don't know how producer guy does it, but of course we've got a database with all your addresses. We, we'll, even, we'll get to Australia if we have to. Don't you worry. Kieran, questions time. It's taken us five minutes and 11 seconds. That's the longest it's ever taken us to start the podcast. And our first question, Kieran, is a very interesting one. It's not necessarily a financial one, but I, I think it does come under our remit uh, to a degree, and I'm interested in your response to it. And it comes from Billy Walker. And Billy Walker says, do you think we may see players being signed for political purposes in the near future? For example, do you think we could see a team like Newcastle sign a player based on his willingness to publicly speak in favour of Saudi Arabia rather than his actual sporting talent? Or could we see certain clauses in player contracts which require them to publicly support things like the Americanisation of football? Now, three years ago, Kieran, you'd, you'd probably dismiss this as the sort of conspiracy theory that I enjoy talking about in the Porson's Arms, but it's an indication of the way football is going in the past in the past few months, really, that people are beginning to ask questions like this. And I'd be quite interested, very interested in your response, actually. Well, I think it does come into our wheelhouse in the sense that it involves contracts and contracts are part of the business of the game. Yeah. Um, with regards to an individual's ability to talk about particular topics, we have seen the likes of Meza Ozil um, speak up with regards to um, the the treatment of uh, Muslim people in, yeah, in certain China. parts of China. Yeah. And as a result, the Chinese government, um, A, they initially, or this is, no, sorry, this was a pure coincidence. Um, they, they decided they weren't going to broadcast any Arsenal's matches. And the next time they did broadcast a match involving Arsenal, um, Meza Ozil played in the match, but his name wasn't mentioned by the commentator. Mm. Um, so th there is the potential politicisation. Um, I think we've also seen ex-footballers um, speak up about politics, and you, you mentioned that that uh, you've you've spoken to Gary Lineker with regards to the book. I think you know, Barry, Gary Lineker's uh, political uh, stance has been has been seen on social media, and, and that's provoked a, a reaction, which which I, which I personally find very strange. And Ian Wright's 
done similar, of course. Yeah. Um, uh, and uh, we've seen Tyrone Mings talk about political issues when it came to taking a knee. And I, I was thinking to myself, well, but people talk to talk about these people as if they are footballers. But when I when I last checked, Gary Lineker, Ian Wright, Tyrone Mings, they're all voters. So when we've got politicians saying footballers should not sport talk about politics, I, I find I find this intriguing because does that mean that you as a comedian should only talk about comedy and not talk about politics? Does that mean that I as a university lecturer should only talk about amortization and not talk about politics? It, it, it does make me wonder as to who should and should not uh, be allowed to, to talk about. But I, I have been in contact um, with some of our agents and there's sort of a, a general catch-all clause in contracts um, along the lines of a player should not do anything which brings the name of the club into disrepute. Now, if the club is owned by a sovereign Wealth, fund, a sovereign nation, or a sovereign wealth fund, um, then it it could be deemed to be in breach of that particular part of the contract. Um, it, I think it will be intriguing to see the reaction of the club and also the reaction of the coach, because yeah, you know, what happens if this player is really good at football? Um, you know, what would the reaction of the fans be if the player is sanctioned by the club, fined, potentially put on the transfer list, and so on, because he or she, of course, has uh, has chosen to, to speak up with regards to a political issue. Um, but um, that there have been uh, players who have been contacted by the FA um, with regards to you know, some of the things that they have said. Um, and it's, it, it's messy. Uh, the PFA, of course, will defend the rights of their members. They, the PFA, you know, if, if necessary, I'm sure that they would uh, try to get uh, some sort of legal support for the player to be able to talk about things. Um, looking at it through sort of for Billy's other comments, could a player be deliberately signed in order to promote the owners of the club in a positive light? Um, certainly. Yeah, there, there's, there is pressure put on. You've only got to look at the, the Abramovich years and... You know, he wanted. He was a big fan of uh, Crespo, so Crespo was signed by Chelsea. He was a big fan of Shevchenko because Shevchenko was, uh, I think, it was Ukraine, wasn't he? Um, so, you know, that that went through as well. So, so we we have seen it for other reasons to do with the owner. Um, we've also seen um, some some mysterious players who have followed managers. Because they happen to be their sons, and I'm, mm. I'm not saying no. Uh, yeah, and it could be, yeah. And I, I'm, I'm, yeah. This isn't a football show. It, it could be that Steve Bruce is an amazing manager and spotted something in Alex Bruce which other people didn't see. Um, yeah, that, that's not for us to say. So, so there, there's there's often reasons going beyond sort of the traditional um, where where players are recruited and political reasons. There's no reason why that couldn't be the case. Yes, it's interesting, Kieran, because we saw, and let's not talk about Steve Bruce because we're already 11 minutes in and we've barely mentioned football finance, so let's not have another 48 minutes on Steve Bruce. Um, although <laughs> I would I would pose an objection to you saying he could possibly be the most talented manager the, the Premier League has ever seen. I mean, it, 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 we saw in the World Cup, Kieran, that there were some England players who 
were probably a little bit unhappy that they couldn't go further in showing their support for the rainbow flag, mm-hmm. and they were made to uh, submit to FIFA's stance. And, and of course, many of our listeners will say, well, it's typical of us to pick on the the liberal side. But the, the other side of the argument is there are, I, I know, players at my club, and I won't name them because they're no longer at my club, but who were, for cultural reasons, um, not too keen on wearing rainbow laces, for example, or promoting that cause. So it strikes me that that's just as big an issue for some mm-hmm. clubs as well in terms of contracting. And it strikes me that what managers and club owners will do is is quietly let them have a day. And, you know, they've got an injury today. Unfortunately, they can't make this game. So it's an issue on both sides of the political spectrum, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. And we, yeah, we've seen James McLean of, yeah, yeah, you know, of, of a variety of wing uh, of yeah. football clubs. And um, he has taken um, a lot of criticism um, from certain parties with regards to to his his views, and yeah, if if you've grown up in Northern Ireland, then yeah, it is a very polarized you know, polarized part of the world, um, and and there is no right answer apart from let's be nice to each other is mm. is you know, is always my my viewpoint. Well, that's because you're full of adrenaline and cuddliness because you drove a tube train this week, Kieran. Um, Richard Bolton talking of conspiracy theories. Um, <laughs> <laughs> This is something around about the third week of the podcast that I mentioned casually and jokingly as a potential conspiracy theory. But it's now a question I think I'm asked more than anything by people who, who, and you'd be amazed how many people approach us to say, I love your pod. Uh, And I always go, which one? Knowing full well they don't mean the palace one. Um, But this is a question I'm asked more and more by people and and I, I still think I know the answer, Kieran, but it comes from Richard Bolton. And Richard says, you've talked many times about American and private equity ownership and where it may take the Premier League. How close is it that legally American owners could force through a US sports franchise slash closed shop model? If it's simply 14 clubs out of 20 needed to push it through, what legally could be done to stop it? Now, if you don't mind, Kieran, my answer to this, my instinct is it will never happen. Mm-hmm. Because I don't understand why those clever, intelligent sports people would basically strangle the golden goose, which is what they would effectively be doing. I think uh, I don't think any British government would allow it to happen, despite what people say about it, England could be thrown out of FIFA if the government tried to stop it. But it is something that is clearly, as each week goes by, with more interest or more news of US interest in in English football, that people are starting to get worried about. Yes. And of course, I know people will be twitching, saying, "Here comes the independent regulator clacks on <laughs> on on the price of football," which of course is one way of addressing it. The current position is that the Premier League does have an agreement with the EFL with regards to three up, three down. Now, could that be changed? Well, yes, it could, because under Project Big Picture which people seem to have forgotten about, one of the proposals was to reduce it, reduce promotion and relegation. It would be two up and two down. And then the, the, the side that finished third bottom of the Premier League would be in playoffs against the sides finishing third, fourth and fifth. Now, if you look at the financial advantage that clubs in the Premier League have, that's effectively creating two up, two down, probably 60 or 70% of the time. So, so that's... That's indicative of 
well, why would the clubs in the EFL have signed up for that? They, 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 they were sold. Yeah, they, they, they were convinced that this was a good idea because no, they hadn't read the small print. You know, I, I was quite fortunate that a journalist leaked the, the plans to me on the day that it came out, and I went through on a, on a line-by-line basis, and I go, yeah, holy moly. Um, the, the Football Association does have what's known as a golden share um, when it comes to votes. So it, uh, for people not familiar with the the makeup of the Premier League, the, uh, the the Football Association Premier League Limited, as it's known, is actually a company. It has effectively twenty one shareholders, twenty of whom are the the clubs themselves, and then the FA has this this broadly golden share, which it never uses. Yeah, it, it's a bit like the president having the codes. To the nuclear button, you know, it's it's there as, uh, you know, sort of a deterrent. You know, don't do anything to that, lads. Um, but again, you you go to Project Big Picture, and uh, there was a one hundred million pound donation to the Football Association as part of. Now, I'm not I'm, I'm not saying that's a bribe, okay? I'm not saying that's a bribe, um, but there was a one hundred million pound donation as part of the overall. Uh, makeup of that scheme. Um, now, could that have influenced the uh, the Football Association's decision when it comes to voting, either for or against such a, such a proposal? Yeah, that's that's not for me to say. Um, so it, it could take place, um, but the the EFL clubs would effectively have to to vote for that. Now, could that be done as part of a, an overall financial settlement? Yes, it could. Um, but what I would say is, A, the regulator, I think here, really would put their foot down. Um, B, relegation is fantastic drama. You know, if you think about the the Premier League in, in quite a few of the you know, recent seasons, it's been done and dusted with plenty of weeks before the end of the season. And then... Yes, it's yeah. The, the minor places are interesting, but relegation has genuine jeopardy, and and it drives viewers. So the broadcasters would not be in favour of it. Mm. Um, and also, in in terms of US sports franchise, and, and look, you know, my view of private equity and, and football is is yeah, they are bad for the sport. They are they are only interested in a financial return. They are only interested in the monetization of fans. Um, and if they do their sums, they say, well, actually, this is really good for us because it de-risks our investment. You can see the enthusiasm for that. Um, but certainly, you know, when I talk to American fans, the thing that comes back on a regular basis is they love the idea of relegation. It's, it's, it's alien to them because of the, the nature of, of US franchise sports. They still find it fascinating and exciting, and and they've seen. Yeah, we've always we've all watched those TV clips of clubs that survive. You know, Everton surviving on the last day of the season, mm. the, the the impact it had on their fans. Equally, the faces of the Leicester and the Leeds United fans. It is fantastic theatre. Um, private equity has got no interest in theatre. It's only got interest in bottom line. So that's that's. That's my concern. Um, I, I don't think it will happen um, because of threats from the regulator. I, I think that the Football Association, um, for want of a better phrase, will find its cojones and uh, also put its, its foot down, not on its cojones, um, but um, but it, it's it's a genuine risk. 
This episode of The Price of Football is brought to you by the AI-powered workspace Notion. What if you had access to tomorrow's tools today? In Notion, you do. It's the AI-powered workspace where any team can turn ideas into action. My career is sort of a bit like being a butterfly, and I'm always jumping from project to project. So therefore, Notion helps me from summarising meetings notes and automatically generating action items to getting answers to any question in seconds. If you can think it, you can make it. And Notion is for everyone, whether you're a Fortune 500 company or a freelance football finance lecturer. You can try Notion for free when you go to notion.com slash price of football. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com slash price of football and start turning ideas into action. That's notion.com slash price of football. Hi, I'm Steve Lamack, and every week I'm joined by Music Allies Head of Insights, Stuart Dredge, on The Price of Music, the weekly podcast all about the money behind the music industry. In each episode, we discuss the very latest goings-on in the music business and dig into the finances behind the big stories. So whether you're a music lover who just wants to know more about what really goes on in the industry, or you're an aspiring musician, manager or label owner who wants some inside knowledge on how Spotify's financial model really works, or what the future holds for independent live music venues, this is a show for you. Subscribe to The Price of Music in your podcast app now. See you soon. Two things off the back of that, uh, Kieran. First of all, I'm, I'm glad you said I'm not saying that's a bribe twice because I always work on uh, a little-known economic law called Maguire's Rule, which is that the more times you say something, the more likely it is to be true. Um, so it's inverse proportion to the deniability of Maguire's claim, uh, and we'll leave that there. Secondly, and I'm, I'm throwing this at you because it only came to light this afternoon, and I've had a lot of anxious Palace fans asking me about it. So this is probably something for you to uh, answer on uh, Thursday's pod. But it's basically yep. about um, the French FA yes. demanding a lot of money from John Texter because the books at Lyon don't look like they're going to balance. So obviously Palace fans are wondering how that's going to play out by them. So if you're happy to answer that on Thursday, Kieran, I'm happy yep, to wait yep, for the answer. Yep. Great. Um, let's get into some proper full-on old-style football finance questions. And the first one comes from Adam Bull. And Adam says, I presume the ongoing increases in interest rates will have an effect on subclubs' finances. Are there any particular clubs you think will be more affected than others? Yes. If we take a look at – and this – is going to be quite nerdy. Um, if we take a look at the borrowings of some clubs, a lot will depend upon personal circumstances. So we've got clubs such as Spurs who have issued what we refer to as bonds to the, the market. So, and, and what a bond does, it says, we will pay you a fixed rate of interest for the following number of years. And that means that Spurs are protected from interest rate rises, and they also do not benefit from interest rate cuts, but they've, they've got a degree of certainty. And it's very similar to, to where we are at present in terms of the mortgage market. So Spurs have gone down that fixed route. They are, they've got these fixed rate borrowings until, I think, an average of 2039. So yeah, it's, it's a very long-term deal that they have. 
Um, at the other end of the scale, we have um, Sonia. And Sonia stands for Sterling Overnight Interest Average. And this is used by the Bank of England to effectively uh, interact with what we refer to as the base rate. Now, some clubs have borrowed money where they pay Sonia plus a percentage. So the one I would be most concerned about here at present is, very sadly, a club that's been on this show far too regularly, West Bromwich Albion. Mm. Um, West Bromwich Albion have borrowed £20 million at Sonia plus 9.75%. Now, Sonia has been rising um, quite considerably over the past couple of years. So it, it is... Uh, it, it is going up, um, and uh, that means that they're effectively paying around about fourteen percent on, uh, on on their borrowings. You know, you know fourteen percent of twenty million pounds is what two point eight million pounds a year. That's over fifty thousand pounds a week. West Bromwich Albion will be in the position that they won't be in receipt of parachute payments, um, so. They get around about seven and a half million pounds a year in TV money. So you can see you know, a significant proportion of their revenue uh, in terms of their, their guaranteed TV monies is now effectively going in interest to MSD Holdings, and that's that's before you take into account the yeah, the elephant in the room. They still want to go and pay twenty million pounds back at some point in time. So it, it is a messy situation. I know that they're trying to get involved with with new uh, investors. That looks complex as well. We uh, uh, we have been in contact with uh, Adrian Childs. We might he might he might come on the show and sort of give us a, a baggy special um, mm. with regards to that because he's as you know he's a very uh, a very keen fan. Um, so, so that's at the other end of the scale. And then we've sort of got a halfway house where some clubs have borrowed using a variable rate of interest. But then what they do in order to protect themselves from interest rate shocks is they get involved in what we refer to as derivatives. Some people might have heard these as interest rate swaps. And you can do variable versus fixed rate swaps which is it is there's a whole cottage industry but except it's not a cottage industry there's a huge derivatives industry which is dealing with trillions of pounds on a daily basis you know the the, the numbers involved are are quite scary um in which clubs can effectively take out an insurance policy against interest rates going up and of course insurance co- yeah they they pay a premium in respect of that so so the whole situation is complicated but sort of you know just referring back to to Adam's case i, I think we we've, we've got very much a spectrum where you've got Spurs at one end of it in terms of the vast majority of its bonds, and then you've got the likes of, of West Bromwich Albion at the other end. I, I, I must admit to a mild degree of panic earlier in that conversation, Kieran, because I've, I thought, how the hell did he find out about Sonia? <laughs> this could be very embarrassing. Um, there are two questions off the back of that, Kieran. First of all, I'd heard of derivatives, but I, I had no clue what they were, to be perfectly honest. So I don't know if it's possible in a sentence or less to to actually clarify what they mean in terms of an insurance policy, how that works for a club. If it's not possible, Kieran, don't worry. It's probably in the book. Um, but secondly, 
this this business of West Brom borrowing at Sonia Plus, why would any club not borrow at a fixed rate? Or is it just the fact that some clubs' economic circumstances means a fixed rate uh, loan isn't available to them? Because it seems to me ludicrous that a club wouldn't want the the consistency, the knowledge of knowing that that's what they'll be paying every year for a certain amount of years. Well, I think that there's two elements here. If if you're going to borrow at a fixed rate, it means that you're transferring all of the, the economic risk to the lender. Now, it could be that MSD Holdings says, actually, we, we're not prepared to lend under those circumstances. So it's it's a floating rate or right, nothing okay. at all. Right. Okay. Um, and I think the second issue with regards to that is um, I, I, I wouldn't trust the people in charge of West Bromwich Albion to be able to sit the right way around on a lavatory, you know, <laughs> such, is the, such is the level of incompetence that we've seen. So it could be that they just said, yeah, okay, first, first person that offers us 20 million, we'll, we'll sign on the dotted line right. and we don't look at the small print because, yeah, that, that, that to me does seem a pretty pretty high rates it's much higher than i've seen on any other lending arrangements really um yeah oh yeah um with regards to what is a derivative it is uh to give you a very quick definition it is a financial instrument which comes at a very low initial fee which is settled at a future date based on an uncertain future event such as a change in interest rates or a change in exchange rates manchester united have got lots of uh, lots of these by the way in terms of some of their foreign borrowings um and it, it gives you a guarantee so if interest rates rise to five percent you've got a deal where you can you've been you've been lending at five percent over libor yourself so so you effectively the two things uh, balance off against each other um but there is there is a whole industry in it um it's it's if people are thinking i was thinking of getting the uh the unfit and improper person's book for my dad for for christmas but it's if, if this is in it i'll strike it off it it's not in the book okay you are safe um Bloomsbury went through with a very, very thick red pen and anything which sent their their, their gaggle of experts to sleep uh, was uh, was was wiped out, which which means 90% of what I wrote. Oh, the, the book is much more entertaining than the pod, Kieran. I mean, there's, there's made-up bollocks in the book. I mean, partly that's my job in the book is to make up bollocks like I do in the pod, Kieran, which <laughs> essentially, and also I, I enjoy channeling my – but essentially the book is basically – you telling me why I'm doing things wrong in this fictional football club. So this, if the derivative, Kieran, is essentially an insurance claim, does that mean once you've claimed on that insurance the first time, did, did you? does it then reset? Do you have to start again? Or does, is it a, a constant? Well, it, 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 it's, no, it's normally for a fixed date. So right, let's, see. Let's, right, say okay. that, let's say that we're due to repay the loan on the 31st of December 2026, um, and you will have another deal that expires on that date. So it could be that you've you're an American based company, American based football club, and you borrowed in euros, and you're worried about the exchange rate. What do you do is that you have a forward contract. So on that date, you've got two contracts, both of which expire on the same day. One of which, whatever you win, you'll lose on the other. So so the, the net position tends to zero. I see. Okay. Um, our next question comes from Shishir Kulahali, uh, who we always welcome questions for because they're always very elegant, I find. Uh, again, this is a question we have been asked before, but Shishir asks it in such a way um, 
that we actually get a definitive answer for the first time, probably. And Shishi says, we know that selling on academy graduates who make it into the first team can be a profitable business model. But my question is, in the Premier League, what is the approximate minimum selling price an academy product must be sold for in order for the selling club to break even once you consider all the prior investment costs that went into nurturing the youngster in the academy? I think that's a really good question. So, you know, we bring through uh, Aaron Wambasaka, for example, in the Palace Youth Academy. We sell him to Manchester United. What is the break-even figure for us to get from Manchester United for Aaron Wambasaka? Right. Um, if we take a look at what information is available with regards to the cost of running an academy, and the vast majority of clubs are very coy, but there's a few such as Aston Villa that, that do do sort of give the game away. They're saying it's costing somewhere in the region of 14 to 15 million pounds to run the academy. Now, some academies will cost a lot more than that. Manchester City's, for example, because many of their academy players, um, as part of the deal, um, they're given the the opportunity to attend uh, St. Bede's, which is a uh, a very highly renowned uh, private school in Manchester. And you see the, the attraction of that uh, to parents and, and scholars. Um, but if we, if we take Villas as perhaps being a, you know, a decent benchmark, then if it's costing 14 to 15 million pounds, Aaron Wambasaka effectively paid for three years worth of the academy. Hmm. So, so that's, that's one way to look at it. Or we say, well, what Aston Villa have to do is to bring through their, their academy the equivalent of 15 million pounds worth of talent a year. Now, Jack Grealish, you know, that's, that's paid for the next six or seven years, as it were. Right. Um, I think uh, Villa also sold one of their academy players to Chelsea uh, last summer for around about 18 million. So, so that's where I would say the position is as far as the Premier League. When you drop down to a category two academy, um, the running costs are probably somewhere in the region of one and a half to two million pounds a year. So it will depend upon uh, the. The, the amount of investment in the academy. Sometimes it's very difficult to definitively allocate costs to the academy because if they are training using the same facilities as, as the first team or the under-23s or the under-18s, whatever it's going to be, um, you know, how do you allocate those costs to each individual centre? Um, how, how do you say, well, what are the costs if, um, if, if you've got, you know, you've got 30 or 40 kids in each year group um, some of those costs, you say, well, yeah, we're paying for, uh, and, and I know somebody that used to to run the sort of the logistics for an academy, and he said it was an absolute nightmare because for this particular club, uh, which I won't name, but it's a very renowned uh, Premier League club, the parents tried to outdo each other in their pushiness, uh-huh. in the sense that they would all say, well, you know, why should why should we bring our son to? to the academy twice a week, we think you should arrange taxis to and from. And then, of course, once you – know, and, and if the, if the under-14s manager goes to the director of football and, and they say, look, this kid's really good, you set a precedent. And, yeah. and then, of yeah, course, yeah. your costs start. So it, you know, it, it, can get, it can get really messy and it can get really expensive. This, uh, this kid that you're after from Chelsea, is he a Chelsea Academy graduate? Levi, yeah, Colwell, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, so that that will be pure profit for Chelsea. 
Okay, which for them at this stage of affairs is very important, presumably, in terms of FFP. Well, pe- people are, yeah, people seem to think that they're in a, in a real pickle with regards to FFP, but I don't think they're as badly off as as is being made out. I think that yeah, really, um, well, yeah, because um, yeah, a lot of people criticise uh, uh, Todd Bowley um, with regards to his his knowledge of football because you know he allegedly came out with this four four three comment and uh, he thought that Chelsea. He said to some journalists, apparently, I don't know whether it's true or not, that uh, you know Chelsea automatically qualified for Europe and so on. Yeah, but if if we take a look at the two limits. Under UEFA's rules, historically, you've only been able to lose thirty million euro over thirty years, uh, sorry, over three years. Whereas under the Premier League rules, you're allowed to lose one hundred and five million. So it's it's much more difficult to satisfy the UEFA rules. Now, where I think Todd Bowley has done a struck of genius, he made sure that Chelsea didn't qualify for Europe this season. <laughs> and therefore, has actually saved the club, and and that's you know. So those people that, that criticise him, you see, you, he's he, he's operating in a fourth dimension that we've not thought of. Yeah, well, see, speaking of Europe, and this, I promise, this is the last mention of the book for several weeks. But that was another discussion of the book. We had to wait for a couple of weeks that when West Park Rovers get into Europe, is it possible, even fictionally, that they could be in the same group as Brighton? <laughs> I'm pointing out that by that time, Palace could be in Europe. Everyone seemed to scoff at that idea. The academy thing's really interesting, Kieran. As, as a Palace fan, our academy is fantastic, but we've only been Category A for uh, probably a year, eighteen months now. So it's too early to have a sense of how well it's going to do. But I think most football fans, if you take City aside, probably most football fans would would think, well, it's great. We have we've got this category, but we don't see nearly as many players breaking into the first team through the category, through the academy that we think we should do. And you still get so many managers who've given the opportunity to choose between an academy youngster to start the season at left back or spending 25 million on an um, experienced Premier League left back would go for the second option. Well, that's right. But then we, you know, we've both seen managers disappear after four matches of the season. Yeah. So, so you can see it you know, from the manager's point of view. It's again, you know, we, I, told, I, I spoke a look looking at it from a from a risk perspective in terms of private equity. They want to de-risk. If you're a manager and you know that if you sign this twenty five million pound a year, this twenty five million pound left back, um, you're going to get a seven out of ten from day one. Hmm. Whereas if you bring the kid through the academy, standing, you know, playing in front of twenty five, thirty five, forty five thousand people. Uh, could be quite intimidating. You can imagine if you're you're 18, you're having yeah, to do that. Yeah, yeah. Um, are they going to put in? It could be fantastic. You know, Wan Bissaka did really well for you in his breakthrough year, but you've also, and we've all seen this. Yeah, you know, there, there are players who have come in, and you go, why why they let him play? Yeah, he, he puts in he puts in a four out of ten performance. Gets take gets hooked. The next match comes on with 15 minutes to go. Again, looks rubbish. You lose one of those matches, you get a nil-nil draw in the other, and after two matches, you're at one point. Um, you, know, you and I are both both old enough to remember that the TV companies and, and even the newspapers didn't used to publish the tables until three or four games into the season. Well, now, yeah, they're published at half-time in the first match. <laughs> BBC, in the 70s, it was 10 games before match today would put the league table up. Uh, very early on. So, yeah, that's, that's imagine having the shoot league table now and you've got to do it at half-time in the first game. 
uh, Google it, kids. Dave Ensor has an interesting question. Dave Ensor says that his question relates to the value of shirt sponsorship, but to the sponsors themselves. Can a value be placed on the awareness generated through appearing on a team's kit? And if so, any idea how much? I, I presume, Kieran, there are people paid quite a lot of money to do research into that sort of data, won't they? The, the companies will have all sorts of brand awareness surveys going on, I imagine, won't they? Absolutely. Key performance indicators for brand awareness, marketing, and so on um, is part art, part science. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there's, there's this glib phrase that some of, uh, some of the people in marketing say that we know that 50% of our advertising budget works. We just don't know which 50%. Huh. And, and that's, why, that's why they spend a lot of money. Um, but you do, you do have they, they try to see sort of return on investments. They talk about reach. They talk about engagement, which they will try to measure nowadays through social media. They'll talk about conversions, whereby if they have a marketing campaign which goes out on a particular platform, how many of those converted into to, to real sales? Um, they, they sometimes use something called advertising value equivalent, which says, well, you know, if, if our product's going to be on the front of Manchester United shirt or Palace's shirt, um, we know that on average, it's, you know, we're going to get 90 minutes a week for you know, 38 weeks. We're on, we're going to be chosen so many times for live broadcast. So you convert that in and say, well, how much would it cost us to to pay for that level of advertising, even at a relatively you know, low level, because you're not actually advertising the product, you're advertising the football, but people subliminally are, are doing this. Because I know um, the, the university, um, the, my, the press office where I work, um, they did something similar to this for me. As I said, they go, oh, yeah, for Christ's sake, Kieran, just get off the television and the radio. And, and it, also, you know, it, it, it is it is a standing joke. And I said, well, just out of curiosity, have, have you done this? So yeah. they sent it off because yeah, clearly we've got marketing departments. Um, and then it came back in, in the first six months of the academic year, my advertising value equivalent, excluding the podcast, was two point one million pounds? Wow! Like, and, and I go, oh, okay. So, 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 so you know, perhaps if we include the podcast, we should be actually asking producer guy to pay us for doing this. Well, so it, it, that's in terms of attracting overseas students or attracting sponsorship to particular courses. How how well, does that relate? They, they, what they say is, if they look at the number of column inches in which I appear, the number, yeah, you know, how much would it cost for a? Oh, I see. Um, to, to, so, 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 get, so if yeah, I if yeah, I sure. do. Yeah, if I do BBC Breakfast, if I do Talk Sport, if I if, you know, if I do Radio Four, how much would it cost us instead of having me talking for two or three minutes? How much would it cost us for a thirty-second advert? Right. Because one of the things I always say that if I'm going to do media work, it's always Kieran Maguire, University of Liverpool. Yeah. So you know, yeah, and that's 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 part of the deal. Yeah, you know, the university's pretty good to me in terms of they let me you know do all this sort of external engagement, um, but but you know we a win win deal is is good for everybody. So yeah, so that's it. So you you appear on all sorts of uh, rightly so as well because of your expertise. So but that's that sends a message to young people around the world that if they're interested in a similar career, Liverpool University is the place to do it. Plus, they think I might get to meet Kieran Maguire, and from that I might get. 
to drive a Bakerloo line train. So there's all sorts of absolutely. Aslev should be sponsoring you as well. Just in terms <laughs> of sponsors, Kieran, you mentioned you know Palace shirt sponsor, Liverpool shirt sponsor. We've got Cinch as our shirt sponsor at the moment. Yeah, who also sponsor the England national cricket team. Yes, um, and there was some discussion last week. I think I probably know the answer to this. There's some discussion as to which would be a better deal. Leave aside how much Cinch are paying us and how much they're paying the England cricket team. But would you be able to tell which was the more successful sponsorship? You know, would they get more value for money from sponsoring a Premier League football team than sponsoring England's cricket team? I think they probably would. The Premier League yeah. is watched in 187 countries That's- around the world. And, and look, we love cricket. You know, I'm, I'm, if I had to choose between cricket and football, I'd choose cricket. I, I, I love cricket. Yeah. Um, but it's... It is a minority sport. It's a minority mm. sport in this country. And if you go to you know the vast majority of those 187 different countries, with the exception of India, remember we had somebody from La Liga, India, yeah. to say, you know, as far as the audience is concerned uh, in India, the sport, it, it's 90% is, is interested in cricket all the time. But 10% of India is still an awful lot. In, and that's what football is fighting for. Um, so yeah, if, if I was um, unless unless Cinch set up in India, um, I would definitely say that a, a football team would be uh, higher profile and probably generate more money as well. Yeah, we most of us thought that, but there were a couple who thought it was counterintuitive. It just I, I think it's probably patriotism as well. Said so, no, of course they'll get more money out of the England cricket deal. But it's it's interesting as well, Kieran. It came up in the conversation. It's I think it's pretty much only. Football now, where national teams aren't sponsored, aren't they? Mm. I mean, rugby went long ago, and there was a big fuss. I know in New Zealand about that hallowed black shirt having sponsors on it. Cricket followed, but so far it, it seems to be almost a taboo to mention the idea of sponsoring certainly any of the home nations' football shirts. Well, I think you used the magic words there. So far, ah, uh, okay. um, oh, really? Okay, yeah. Somebody at FIFA at one point is going to say. Well, you know, let's let's work out how much it would potentially generate. The issue that FIFA have is that they are concerned that if the Brazilian national team was sponsored by Pepsi Cola, FIFA have their own arrangement with their senior sponsors, the likes of Coca Cola, right? Okay, which are in so FIFA doesn't want to cut off its nose to spite its face. Um, by allowing the individual football associations to generate money, if that caused FIFA to come into conflict with its fairly big and very, very, be- you know, very, very um, beneficial sponsorship arrangements that it has with its uh, senior market, senior commercial partners. Well, speaking of the home nations, Kieran, Gareth Edwards is uh, presumably Welsh. I'm sure he won't mind me saying that, especially because he's a Wrexham fan. And Gareth says that his team, Wrexham, have received a lot of grief for buying our way out of the National League. I'm, is grief the right word? I'm not, I've, I think people have been more intrigued, but maybe Gareth has been speaking personally to fans of other clubs at that level. But Gareth says, are you able to check who are the last team to win promotion from the National League making a profit? I feel most teams have made losses achieving promotion, but most of the league seem to believe it's just us doing it this way. Um, well, I think Gareth is absolutely right. The vast majority of clubs um, 
do lose money and the only one that has actually made a profit was Harrogate Town and they made a profit wow. of £7,000. You can imagine I was in company's house heaven <laughs> going through these results. Um, but they made a profit of £7,000 in 2020. Um, getting promoted is really expensive. Uh, you know, Salford City, they got promoted in 2019. They lost millions. Leighton Orient lost millions. Uh, the biggest loss makers... Sorry, can, can I just check in? You're talking about they, they made a loss in the year that they got promoted, not subsequently. That's right. No, well, okay. they've, they've lost money subsequently, yeah, but, yeah, it, but, but getting is, out of the National League. Right. Yeah, okay. so, so in 2019, Leighton Orient lost 3.3 million, Salford City lost 2.4. Even Barrow, you think, oh, Barrow, you know, small club, lives within its means, they lost a load of money in 2020. The biggest losses ever in getting promoted, uh, and this is set a benchmark, and, and this is where I think, you know, Rexham might say, well, actually, you know, we, we're, we're not uh, as... Uh, as profligate as, as some people claim. Stockport County, in getting promoted in 2022, lost £4.8 million. Yeah, that's, that's the thick end of a hundred grand a week in a non-COVID year. Yeah, that's um whereas and, you know, it, and is that mainly players' wages, Kieran? Are we thinking? That'll be, main, be mainly wages. Absolutely. Mainly wages, right, okay. Yeah, and yeah, a bit of amortization if they sign players. Um where people I think are perhaps not looking at Wrexham in enough depth. They're saying, well, yeah, Wrexham have got all of these costs. And, you know, and, you know, and I know what Paul Mullen's salary is, and I know what some of the other salaries are and so on. Yeah, they, they are they are very well played players by certainly by National League standards, certainly by League Two standards, and some of them certainly by, by League One standards as well. Um, but profit, ultimately, it's income, less costs. And the deals that Wrexham have managed to negotiate on the back of the welcome to Wrexham um, phenomenon. I think that's the only way you can describe it. You know, it it's yeah. been it's been fantastically well marketed. Um, you know, Wrexham uh, Wrexham now have their own correspondent at the Athletic. Well, yeah, yeah. there's yeah, yeah. there's clubs in there's clubs in the Premier League that barely get a whisper, but but Wrexham do. Um, so whilst they've got the uh, McElhenney and Reynolds factor, uh, then I think the losses won't be uh, as great as some people would be thinking because they're generating so much additional revenue. It's interesting. The genius of the Welcome to Wrexham thing, Kieran, isn't it? Because we spoke to a couple of people um, after the Plymouth pod um, about what I thought was a cliche. It's like, it, it, is it difficult to um, tempt players to travel to the further outposts of English mm. football, if you like? And in the past, I'm sure Wrexham yeah, would have had to explain where they were to some people that they were trying to trying to buy. But now, of course, because of that documentary, Wrexham will be a target destination for a lot of agents. So it's not only helped them raise money, but it's actually literally put – it hasn't put them on the map. They did exist before football happened as a town. But, you know what I mean? It's, it's made it a kind of glamorous go-to destination in a way that – it's got, it's got to be easier for them to attract players than it would have done been 10 years ago, surely. Oh, certainly. So, and also, the other thing that attracts players is money and the fact that they're paying out uh, pretty decent payroll levels. Um, and it, and it's great it's great for the town because you know the, the pub in which features yeah that now that has now become a tourist destination. Yeah. And yeah, you know, I've, I've seen the, the, the other side of Wrexham. I was 
fortunate or unfortunate enough, no, I'd say fortunate to to attend the Fans United event um, in in the mid mid two thousands and. Yeah, the welcome that we had from the Wrexham fans was off the scale. But I used to run a double glazing company in Wrexham, which had gone into administration. And yeah, you got to know the people and the people were absolutely fantastic. But the big fear, yeah, because the nature of the work that I'm doing is people saying, okay, if we, if, if, if we don't get sold, we've got nothing to go to. You know, so mm. uh, it, it is one of those towns which you know, it, its core industries historically have gone. So, so getting back on the map, uh, opportunities for the local chamber of commerce and so on um, have got to be seized. You know, as a Palace fan, Kieran, I'm quite pleased to hear that you used to be a glazier. Uh, <laughs> what was that thing you did for AVE Liverpool? That you, two two point one billion pounds. You a- advertising value equivalent. Yeah, I might do that for the Porson's Arms because I reckon yes. they probably owe me about thirty five quid. I reckon there's at least six or seven people a season going into that pub who wouldn't have gone near it if it wasn't for this podcast or our books, Kieran. Um, you mentioned that West Brom have been talked about too often uh, on this pod, and unfortunately too often on the news pod. Um, there's nothing to indicate that's going to change in the near future, sadly. But this uh, is a West Brom question that their fans don't need to panic about. Mm. And it's an interesting. It comes from Callum Hayward. And Callum says, I have a question about kit legislation, brackets. I promise it's more exciting than it sounds. We'll be the judges of that, Callum. Uh, Callum says, my team, West Brom, produced two lovely-looking kits last season. A big reason for them being so well thought of was the classic WBA badge, which featured on all our three kits. Is there a rule that says EFL clubs can wear a kit which doesn't feature their current badge? So I also assume this rule doesn't apply in the Premier League, as we've never rocked the classic badge in the top Flight. I mean, it's an interesting one, Kieran. You've got a modern kit with what sounds like a classic badge on. Yes, there, there's absolutely nothing to stop the club from doing that. Uh, it, it's more of a case of protecting intellectual property. You know, have they got a trademark? Have they got uh, yeah, that form of legal protection for both the old badge and the new? Because you do see um, some people that sell knockoff stuff making subtle differences and and then you get into sort of that that Ed Sheeran uh, point of you know where where do four chords become a new song um in terms of intellectual property mm. so that's why if you if you go to matches and you see um the half and half scarves they are very very careful in terms of the words that they use on those half half and scarf just to make sure that the club uh, doesn't get upset and sends sends somebody to go and deal with them, or trading standards are you know are, are putting putting in an appearance to say, well, actually, you, know, you can't cannot say Chelsea versus Brighton Hove Albion. You'll use a you know, it will be the Chelsea uh, versus <laughs> yeah you know, something something equally you know the keen eaters. I could yeah I could think of a couple of words off the top of my head, Kieran, but yeah you know, <laughs> yes, just in case Bloomsbury are listening, let's not go down that route. <laughs> yes. <laughs> We have to behave ourselves now, won't we? For, yeah, yeah. Only, in, only in the book. I don't think oh, okay. I... Carry on. <laughs> um, so as far as not having a badge, I think some clubs, I, I have seen some badges which have effectively just been um, press printed onto the shirt. So you'd only know it through a sense of feel, which is, uh, you know, you wouldn't, it's actually physically impossible to see 
they, they show it. So, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's a form of braille. And, and whilst I was walking up, I saw, I'm not trying to cram, cram this in. Uh, another one of uh, the listeners to the show has uh, has got me uh, talking tomorrow, which is well, on the day the show comes out on Monday. I'm talking to the Royal National College for the Blind oh, wow. um, about um, football and finance and uh, coming to university and so on. And that's all on the back again of one of our listeners who's been in contact. And I say, yeah, 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 we'll do this type of thing. Yeah, we, we want to promote, uh, you know, the, I know what we do is a bit odd, but there's still opportunities for people regardless of of background. So, you know, in terms of trying, trying to get things as accessible as possible, yeah. open the world of football, Certainly, the world of university and you know, me as a chartered accountant, accessibility is available for people. So that, that was not that was not a, a, a pre-planned crowbar, but it just sort of struck me. Well, while, um, while, you, while you have got out the golden crowbar, Kieran, it gives me the chance to announce we have somebody uh, from the blind community talking to us in a couple of weeks' time about their experience as uh, a blind fan. Because again, we've been speaking to quite a few disabled fans uh, mm. of all across the spectrum recently. Um, and it's something we are determined to get involved with because it's quite clear that football isn't as accessible for quite a lot of people that want to go as we as we would want it to be. Yeah, cool, cool. Um, so there's there's nothing to stop using an old badge apart from uh, you know the, the clubs do do spend a lot of money on new bag badges. You know they 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 get the people with the uh, you know with, with the spectacular spectacles and the. The, the red braces to come up with new designs and, and therefore they, they want to to use that on a long-term basis but as um as, as a throwback to particular seasons particular events there's absolutely nothing to, to stop them from using the old badge uh, apart from the fact that they might not themselves have uh you know as much legal protection for them as, as they would have done historically uh, uh, mark lamar the great grumpy comedian swears blind that this story is true. He was asked to talk to a group of young deaf students about just life in general and about comedy and, and about how they could take part in the creative arts. Um, and obviously it was a signed performance and, and halfway through he thought to himself, this is brilliant. This is going down really, really well, lots of laughs. And he spoke to the signer afterwards and said, oh, I'm so pleased with how that went. I was really nervous. I'm so pleased I got so many laughs. And the signer went, I was doing my own material, mate. which i just just hope that it's true that's a great it's a great gag i know i know um our penultimate question kieran has a lot of numbers in it um um, which we shouldn't apologize for on a football finance podcast but they're numbers to illustrate a really good question and it comes from Ben Andrew, who's a whole City fan. White telephone boxes. My question is about the cost of watching football on TV, says Ben. Last season, it cost the following to legally watch Premier League football on the screen. So the Sky Basic package was £457 a year. Sky Sports, £300 a year. BT Sport, £300 a year. Amazon Prime, £95 a year. TV licence, £159 a year. That's a grand total of £1,311 per year. I have a seven-week-old son 
who may well be 22 by now, for all we know, they're waiting. <laughs> uh, I've got a seven-year-old, seven-week-old son who I'm waiting to take to whole city live and then watch as much as possible at home, praying he's a fanatic like me. He, he will be a fanatic like you, Ben, until such time as he grows up and gets his own house, then he can do what he wants. While he's under your roof, he's a whole city fan. But Ben says at that price, there's no chance of that being able to happen in terms of watching football on TV every night. So my question is, at what point is it in the Premier League's financial interest to adopt a Netflix-style product, meaning a low monthly price point for customers at the risk of sounding cynical, which is the payoff line for our last question, at the risk of sounding cynical, I'm not sure broadcasters are that worried about whole city fans, Kieran, are they really? Um. No, but they are worried about the Premier League going solo. Ah, um, okay. So, so yeah, I, th- I think in in terms of Ben and Ben's comments, I can assure you the Premier League has already done these sums. Oh, right. And has worked out where the break-even points are. Now, we, we've we've mentioned on this show a couple of times what we refer to as a risk assessment, and. One of the things about risk is looking at variable versus fixed. And when it comes to the Premier League's deals with its its senior partners, Sky, Amazon, BT, BBC, and so on, the Premier League knows exactly how much money it's going to get per year. And it's in the region of £3 billion a year. So therefore, the Premier League would have to come up with a scheme which, if it sold the rights itself... And remember, it's got no experience of doing this. Um, if it broadcasts the matches itself. Now, if if there's something goes wrong with the broadcasting of matches at present, the BT shouts at Sky or BT. Yeah. All of a sudden, it, it's it's going to have shouted itself. And you've got fans shouting at at the uh at, at the Premier League. So there, there's there's a lot to take on. You know, you, it'll be more employees, it'll be more risk, it will be more cost, there will be an initial infrastructure investment unless it outsourced um but it but i can assure you it it has done that and i suspect what we are likely to see probably not until at least one more round of tv uh, negotiations and the next one kicks in in 2024 is that the premier league will start off selling its own package of 20 to 40 matches to dip its toe in the water to learn what works and what doesn't work Right. You know, it'll be, you know, is is Jake Humphreys free, for example? You know, you know to see whether they got – because you need somebody to host it. But, you know, and people – I, I think people I, are, are – I don't think he's free, Kieran. He's, I mean, I think he probably charges a little bit. Yes. He, I, I think he'll be free, Kieran. I think BT Sport winding him up. I think he would make himself available. After. Kieran, if, if, if this was to happen – I'm sorry to interrupt you again. Would, would such a package – do you think morally beyond bound to include all Premier League clubs, or would they just go straight for five Man United games, five Man City games, five Liverpool, five Chelsea, etc.? No, that they wouldn't do that because that would really upset the other right. partners right. who have paid huge sums. So um, also, they've they they've got to persuade. You know, in order for the Premier League to do this, they've got to get fourteen clubs voting for it. So why would Palace? vote yeah, why would Brighton yeah, yeah, vote why point, would Bournemouth yeah. and, and Villa vote it for there to be five more Manchester United and Liverpool and Chelsea and Manchester City games shown each season it's just yeah you know, it's it's not it's not going to it's not going to pass the smell test um but 
the Premier League certainly has internally had those discussions with itself. It's done the calculations. The broadcasters are aware of it. Um, the Premier League uses that threat, you know, just as the, the big six clubs use the threat of the Super League to negotiate more and more financial concessions from the other clubs when it comes to the distribution of money. The Premier League uses the threat of, well, well, if you don't increase the amount of money you're prepared to pay Sky and BT or whoever's, whoever BT, BT is becoming is it TNT from next year, yeah. um, then okay, we, we will set up by ourselves, and yeah, we'll, we'll start off with a few matches. But I'll be honest, guys, you know, six years' time, you're toast because you know, we're, we're just going to use this to, as a slow ramp up to, to learn, learn our trade. And then in 2030, we're going to fly solo. And, and that's the big fear because the Sky have got a big range of products. We know that, but it's, it's still the, the jewel in the crown is Premier League rights, and that's what they pay the most for. Do you know, it's, I'm always reminded of um, stadium name changes. I watch BT Sport, uh, mainly because they've got uh, Champions League games, and they can have two adverts per minute telling us that yeah, it's going to be the same product, but it's going to be called TNT. They can do that to their blue in the face. Three years' time, I'll still be saying it's on BT Sport. Yeah. Well, none of us are going to call it TNT. Our last question, Kieran, comes from Nicholas Andrews Govain which is such a classy-sounding name, I can't help thinking it's maybe one of those that's probably pronounced Chumley. I don't know, but it's a lovely name. I, I feel that I'm mispronouncing it somehow. One of the, the, the S at the end of Andrews should be silent. I don't know. But Nicholas has a question. I think I know the answer to this, Kieran. Um, Nicholas says, could a player set up a company of which he is an employee and then get that company to sign a contract with the club they play for rather than sign as an individual? This way, the player's company could pay for certain services and equipment as business expenses and work around tax loopholes. Or, says Nicholas, as I said at the end of the last question, am I just too cynical? It it reminds me, Kieran, I mean, it seems like the way several high-profile entertainers are paid for television work, but could that happen in football? Um, it, it's already happened in that's, football. That's what I thought it might be the case, yeah. Um, there are... Uh, you know Harry Kane, for example, he has a company. Um, many, many players do. Marcus Rashford has his own company. Uh, Jesse Lingard has his own company. Now, some of these companies are set up for external interests, property development. Uh, uh, right, okay. You know, uh, I, th- I think in the case of Jesse Lingard, he set up a, a company involved in fashion and so on. Um, but some of these companies are there for intellectual property rights so yes that there are ways and, and we you know, we've mentioned this on quite a few occasions when it comes to dealing with hmrc um, and there are ongoing investigations and there are ongoing discussions between hmrc and football clubs with regards to just how much money generated by the footballer is going to the footballer and how much is going to the footballer's image rights company or this other company and so on of which they're a director of um that don't don't take the mickey. So, you know, if, if you if you don't take more than probably twenty percent, you know, the likes of Harry, you know, Harry Kane is a, uh, you know, he's a fantastic footballer, but he's a fantastic brand in his own right. So, therefore, um, you know, he's entitled to have some form of intellectual property company. Um, that that's the way it goes. So, it's already in existence. It tends to be the case for the higher profile players with the uh, with, with the bigger. Uh, marketing opportunities and, and the bigger brands in their own right, you know, the, the, the huge numbers of uh, followers on social media and so on. What, 
Well, that's fine for image. I mean, yeah, we assume when we see Raheem Sterling doing his terrible just shaved acting uh, in the advert, you think, okay, well, that's probably going through a company or possibly not in his case. But I think Nicholas is more interested in just in terms of basic wages. I mean, could Harry Kane, could his contract with Spurs be through Harry Kane Incorporated rather than so could he have his, his salary paid through his company? No, he right, okay. would fail what is known as IR35, ah. which is um, effectively a subcontractor's ruling, which HMRC have been employing. Um, that has caused lots of people, you know, you know, so imagine many of your colleagues in the entertainment industry yeah. who, who have sort of contracts with broadcasters, but now potentially are being caught under these IR35 rules. Um, and there are a series of tests. You know, in, in the case of Harry Kane, um, they, they, the revenue say, well, can you play football for anybody else? And they say, well, no, I've got a contract yeah, exclusivity yeah, yeah. for Spurs, yeah. in which case you'd fail automatically. Okay. Um, thank you to everyone who's donated to the pod via our Patreon page. If you'd like to make a small monthly contribution to the pod, that'd be very kind of you. You can do so by going to patreon.com slash price of football. If you have a question you'd like answered on the show, email us at questions at price of We'll be back on Thursday with our news pod, including Kieran's take on John Texter in France. In the meantime, I shall hand you over to Mr. Kieran Maguire for his customary farewell. Well, thank you as ever, for all the support and, and all of the ways that you do get in contact with us. It, it, it is genuinely uh, fantastic that, that, that you you care so much. Um, there's, there's lots of ways you can support the show. Patreon for as little as a pound a month. And if you want no adverts, you can pay a little bit more um, if, if, you, if you want to whiz through the show a little bit faster. Um, but another way, and it's not going to cost you anything more than it's off few seconds of your time is to go on to that app of yours and and to give us a review because it helps us in the charts it helps us uh, in terms of our advertising value equivalent because <laughs> marketing people well, well, they've had 2000 reviews they they, they they must know what they're doing ish um it, it doesn't matter what you say you can even say you would rather have the show presented by robert louis stevenson and mick lynch and it wouldn't make a blind bit of difference to me Oh, where did you get Robert Louis Stevenson from? That's the, I, I well, I'm, I'm 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 having a trains obsessed weekend. So, ah. well, I, hang on, I'm, I'm going through. Hang on, Jekyll and Hyde, Treasure Island. Where's Where's Robert Louis Stevenson's train? Didn't he invent the rocket? Oh, that Robert Louis. No, that's um, ah. See, that's a terrible note to end. Robert Louis oh, Stevenson no. is the author. Oh yeah, 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 you're right. No, yeah, you are. Yeah, right. you're thinking of um, George Stevenson. Oh, blimey. Yeah, yeah, I believe Stockton to Darlington, the uh, rocket. That's a uh, we we mentioned. <laughs> this is a terrible revelation about the how the mind of two middle aged men. Because I was generally, we were a bit late starting to record because I was so excited. What happened next in the tube train then? And what does that button do on the thing? They still got a dead man's handle. And oh then yeah, we, well they have. Yeah, but then we started. Yeah, yeah. So we started talking about the uh, <laughs> the transport museum at Covent Garden. 20 years ago, Kieran, we would have been talking about museums before doing <laughs> – 20 years ago, Kieran, we were doing a finance podcast. We'd be out doing young people stuff. Bye, everybody. Bye.
that provides some photo quality.